0: Guys, I'm wearing a shofar pin, just saying. The little card it comes on says, a Jewish
1: blowout. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts. Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Who is shaking a Lulove as we speak. The Lulove Shaking Liel Leibovitz. Our original plan had been to take this week off because, frankly, we've earned it. We've been all over the country. Uh, It's been a hectic time for us. But we decided that we had to share a really timely conversation that Stephanie had with Jody Cantor, who, with Megan Toohey, is the co-author of the new book, She Said, which details the allegations of sexual misconduct against Harvey Weinstein, allegations that Jody and Megan broke in The New York Times two years ago. We also bring you a conversation that Liel had with Peter Pomerantsev, who is author of This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. So two very cool conversations this week. I am part of neither of them, but— I am here to be part of the conversation with Liel and Stephanie as we catch up with each other, having not laid eyes on each other in some days now.
2: As we sail from Yom Kippur to Sukkot.
0: I have a high holiday grenade to launch. Liel, I hear you sit front row at synagogue on Yom Kippur. Represent! I have a spy at Anshah Chesed who was like... The spy
2: was lovely. I was so happy to see that spy. Liel
0: sits front row. And I was like, I'm not at all surprised.
2: I'm, I'm that kid. Did you
0: get there on time and sit in the front row? I was
2: there like 8.30. You were there early. I was like person two.
0: I live stream as listeners know. So I toggle between like central synagogue and then if that's like the organs kind of like confuse me sometimes. So if, if it's too organy. I'll switch to Lab Shul, which is Amichai Levy, who's been on the show. And then when that gets too much, I go back to Central, and I love Angela Bookdahl. I mean, it's it's kind of – it's like it's like choose-your-own-adventure. It's kind
2: of Yom Kippur and chill, right? Like, you yeah. sit on the couch, and you're like – I'm going to binge on Book Doll and then I'm going to palate cleanse with a Michal
0: I heard like 17 Yom Kippur appeals <laughs> at this <laughs> point. But I did give. I do I do give.
1: You beat your chest so many times this Yom Kippur. <laughs> okay,
0: so here's the thing that I heard I, at Central, actually, which I really, really liked and I wanted to bring to you. Yeah. Instead of the beating our, our chest, instead of thinking of that as like flagellation, the other rabbi at Central was like, we should think of it as a resuscitation. And so we said like, I have sinned by lying or I have sinned by whatever. Ever. And instead of beating your chest each time, I'm doing it right now. Instead of beating your chest as like a punishment to yourself, you beat it as a resuscitation, kind of like those things on Grey's Anatomy.
1: You're spiritually highly <laughs> maneuvering yourself. I liked it. <laughs> I like that idea. I like it too. Here's, but here's my other question, Stephanie. And in all seriousness, you do Yom Kippur in that, you know, you, you live stream these synagogues. You're a major New York Jew. Oh
0: my God, thank you. You're surrounded
1: by dozens of synagogues. Do you foresee... Any time when you're going to buy some tickets or score some free tickets or whatever, and and go to synagogue for the high holidays.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I do yes, I, I jest a little bit, but I am in an interesting spiritual place, right? Where I I do we do this all day long, and so we, when the holiday comes, I am and I, you know you guys have kids, it's a little bit different for me. I'm just like, in some ways, this is my day off. In some ways, I do feel like Yom Kippur is a holy day. I actually didn't, I wasn't on my phone. I put my phone in a drawer. Wow! I really tried to – I did try to disconnect. I didn't go on Instagram all day. I did try to make the day different. Then again, I took out my computer to live stream, but I did shut off the text messages, so I couldn't see who was text messaging Look, I me.
2: got to tell you, like my whole brand, right, yeah. is just to scoff at shit like, yeah. oh, I was home and streaming the stuff. But I got to tell you, there's something about it as someone who was in sure from like –
0: Front row, baby. 5 p.m.
2: on Tuesday (laughs) until 7.30 p.m. Wednesday and it's like still fasting two days later, right? There's something so charming and actually kind of moving and meaningful about it. Like you just took a day to sit and kind of like sample a whole smorgasbord, a spiritual (laughs) smorgasbord, if you will, of what really smart, thoughtful people had to say and and felt a little part of a lot of communities. So yeah, I think there's, think there's there's a quantitative and qualitative difference. I think being there in person Matters a lot, and and maybe one day you will do it. But I don't scoff at it at all. I actually think it's kind of beautiful and moving. And I I, I wonder what this experience is like. I'm curious to hear more about. I it.
0: I mean, to me, a, it is a special day. Yes, I'm lying on my couch, but I mean, I was sitting up for a lot of it to to do all the chest the chest beating and the resuscitation. No, I mean, I it is a little bit of a cop out, right? Like I I it's different when you stand in a synagogue, and it's different when you're, you know, you're there, you're hungry, you're in this sort of like you're taken to this other place, right? But just the fact of your fasting and your being among all these people, yes, you do lose that. You know, it's like a Peloton versus SoulCycle class, you know, like you're doing it on your own. It's very, very spiritually different.
1: But no, I mean, I don't know. I didn't mean it as a criticism. I was really just asking, like, is this, you know, where, where do you see your practice going?
0: I want more rabbis to be reaching out to me to be coming to their synagogue.
1: I've long said, and I always get shot down when I brought this up, but to pull the curtain back a little bit, I've long said that given that, you know, my life and Liel's are, are relatively stable, I mean, Liel's made some changes, but he's he's <laughs> happy where he is now and I'm happy where I am now, that we should have some sort of contest where rabbis compete for your membership. Like, they they sell themselves. We should do it like the masked singer. Yes. It should be the masked rabbi. They should come here wearing elaborate costumes and do a drosh, <laughs> and Stephanie should choose not even knowing who that person the is. The Schler. We should basically start down at South Street Seaport and go up. I don't know. I suggested Washington Heights, but you don't want to go that high. Maybe Upper West Side, I Upper walk. East Side. And <laughs> you want to be able to walk. I want to just, I want to be courted. Let's be, let's be real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why is no one reaching out to me, trying to get, trying to save me?
1: It is worth saying that you, none of us got a single invitation from a rabbi anywhere on the island of Manhattan saying, "Do you need tickets?" Which, given that we are the universe's leading Jewish podcast, is you know says something about the marketing savvy of our Jewish clergy. So, guys, look for next year. Could we court Stephanie just a little bit,
0: please? Yeah, I mean, I was going to East End because you know, right after you get married, they let you go. They're sort of like, "Come to services. Here's a t- here's a ticket," which is you know, the literally right. the golden ticket in New York City. <laughs>
1: I was in Pittsburgh, and I spent Kol Nidre with uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, which was worshiping elsewhere because their building is still not fit to move back into. And then the morning of, I went to Rodef Sholem on Fifth Avenue, which is my dad's and granddad's and great-granddad's natal temple.
0: When you said natal, I heard canadal.
1: <laughs> it was their canadal, their canadal temple. And afterwards, I went up to Rabbi Aaron Bisno, who gave a wonderful uh, sermon, and I said, hey, Aaron, I'm... Uh, you know, just so you know, I'm 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 bouncing around town. I'm gonna rate all the different sermons. You were about the third best, I heard. And he looked at me <laughs> a little bit petrified as if I were serious. And then I was like, I'm just kidding, man. I'm not actually gonna write about your sermon. He looked at you and said, Mark, our community has suffered enough. <laughs> but it was it was a great sermon. It was great to be at, at Road F. Uh, it was great to be in the actual like building where my dad was confirmed in 1958. Now, listen, the the thing is one would like to think that News of the Jews takes a vacation. During high holidays, just as we actual Jews take a vacation. But that ain't the truth. Uh, there's been a lot of news of the Jews, and I want the whole J crew to know how I'm gonna handle this, which is we're gonna go from the fun to the very serious and then back to the fun again. We're gonna do a seriousness sandwich. First of all, bagel truck burn. This happened in Indiana. A semi-tractor transporting 38,000 pounds of frozen bagels caught fire on Interstate 65 Sunday night. A tragic situation that left the beloved breakfast food cooked beyond repair, especially given an inadequate amount of cream cheese on hand.
2: Can I just say, this (laughs) I think is the universe's revenge against everyone who completely erroneously defies the will of the Lord our God has their bagel toasted? It is. If you ever have your bagel toasted, which you should never, ever, 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 ever do because the bagel should be fresh and delicious just as it is, just think of this truck and know that you're doing evil in the eyes of the Lord.
0: The tractor driver was okay, we will say that, but the bagels were not. <laughs> the bagels were not.
1: Leo, I was just sort of wondering how does this fit into your grand theory that bagels are not Jewish foods anymore? I mean, the thousands of bagel, thousands of pounds of bagels burning to a crisp on interstate in, of all states, Indiana. It's
2: almost like a sign. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> also in the sort of, I'm going to put this in the trivial category, though it touches on bigger themes. Um, we talked about how Demi Lovato went to Israel and, and visited the Western Wall. Then she took to Twitter to apologize to her fans who were offended by her Israel visit, who felt that it was, you know, politically incorrect of her to to go. But then, if I'm not mistaken, Demi Lovato's mom, who I guess has her own Twitter account, took to Twitter to sell out her daughter and say, mom's not offended by the visit. My daughter might be offended, but I'm really psyched that I went.
0: It was a free trip to Israel. Um, and remember, she went to see those kids. She went to the Shalva Center. I mean, it's unclear, I think, who paid for the trip. But people were like, how dare? I mean, look, any trip to Israel, unfortunately, by a celebrity, especially who one who's not Jewish, though I think she identifies as having Jewish roots somewhere. But, you know, people get mad about it. And it's just, it's frustrating and, and annoying. And by, and, so,
2: and by people, you mean filthy anti-Semites. So, yeah.
0: But yeah, I mean, I think we should also stop getting so excited when celebrities go to Israel. That's a great point. Like, we did it last, literally just in the episode that aired last week. We're like, Demi Lovato went to Israel. She's sorry, not sorry. Like, and we played it up. But then then the same thing happens on the other side. <laughs> what, what
1: do we care? Good for you. Yeah, okay. Like, go wherever you okay. want. It's do, like she went to Greece. Care? Friends, and now, as I promised, we're going to go dark for a moment. On Yom Kippur itself, two people killed in an attack on a synagogue— In Halle, Germany, the attackers didn't get into the synagogue, but ended up shooting two people outside it uh, who died. It seems like there was more than one attacker. One has been captured. Uh, At least one they think is on the loose. There's a lot that's still not known. I found out about this while attending an afternoon panel at the Jewish Community Center in Pittsburgh, where there were audible gasps when, when Rabbi Ron Simons told the crowd, most of whom, like me, had been off of their phones, off of social media, off of the news. I don't know. I mean, what what does one even say?
0: I had this weird thing where I, as I said, I wasn't on my phone, and I basically got Ben was like Germany, like what, and and sent me the link, and then I was like, well, now I'm on, the, now I'm online, um, just to, just to follow this story, and it's just horrific and heartbreaking, and um, it's weird. I also feel like it's not that like. It's, I know people are covering it, but it doesn't feel like it's such a big deal. Maybe that's because it's you, like in Europe. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like people are... It's only Jews.
1: Who cares? And then just to put the sandwich back to, to end with a fun piece of, of leavened bread on the other side of the sandwich. Stephanie and Leo, what, what else do we want to go out with? A little fun news for the people? So this is not fun news, Mark.
2: This is news of the divine will. This is uh, serious theological consideration. As you know, some years ago, Sandy Koufax, hero of our people, made history uh, when he refused famously to play in Yom Kippur. This year, we had a really extraordinary situation in which three different Jewish players all were slated to play in Yom Kippur, all three played, and all three were punished for their sins, in what Tablet Magazine's Armin Rosen called the Koufax Curse and we thought we would have him here to uh, help us understand. So
3: Armin, What's the curse of Kofax? Well, assuming it even exists in the first place. It exists. Look, it's not for us to know whether it exists or not. But there is a strong correlation between notable major Jewish Major League Baseball players deciding to play on Yom Kippur and their teams losing in the most, not just like humiliating fashion, but ways that are going to like redound for decades to come. Give us the list of sinners, this Yom Kippur. Who did foul in the eyes of the Lord? Clearly the one who did the most foul is Max Fried. The uh, pitcher for the awful, disgusting, reprehensible Atlanta Braves who had a day to forget. He came in relief when the Braves were already trailing, I think, six to nothing in the first inning. By the time he left at the end of the second, they were down 11 to nothing. And like, this is the kind of loss that defines a franchise forever. Right, it's like when, you're, when your NFL team goes 0-16. It's like, you can win the next 10 Super Bowls, but no one's going to forget that that happened. And so the Braves were smoting. Now, tell us about Jock Peterson. This is almost worse. So Jock Peterson did not have a bad day in the Dodgers' defeat at the hands of the Washington Nationals. In fact, in the first inning, uh, he appeared to hit a home run it turns out that the ball had kind of laced through this weird window in the outfield fence. Almost as, as just if the double. hand
2: of the Lord turned a home run it, it was, into a it double. Was,
3: it was the Ruachadole. <laughs> that was it. It blew all the way all the way from like the waters off of Tarshish to kind of like nudge that ball through this weird hole in the outfield fence. And then the Dodgers had like an 80 or 90 percent win probability going to the seventh inning. They put in Clayton Kershaw, who might be the greatest left handed pitcher of all time. Uh, The other candidate being Sandy Koufax, oddly enough. Um, And he allows home runs on back to back sliders. So the Dodgers lost in a way that like none of their fans will ever like fans who are not born yet are going to be like sick of hearing about this game in 50 years. Did Jock Peterson playing result in like an iconic defeat? I don't know. Well, we'll I don't get to know that how, how Shem works. But Leo. but
2: still but there's still
3: there's still Alex Bregman.
2: Yes. Probably the greatest Jewish baseball player in the last
3: what, 30 years easy. Yeah, and if you think that athletic ability only increases over time, there's an argument to be made that ability-wise, he's the greatest Jewish baseball player, period. So Alex Bregman did play on Tuesday night as Cole Nidre began he was going one for four with a strikeout against the relief pitcher that the Tampa Bay Rays started to rescue their season. Um, and even with Justin Verlander starting for Houston, they lost 4-1. to
2: I think you look at these three catastrophic flameouts, uh, at least one of them, or maybe two of them, of real historic proportions, and there's no way of not thinking about this as the good Lord saying to us that if you prioritize your career above your people, your religion, and your tradition, thou shalt be punished.
3: That's true, but you could say that any Jewish player does that when they play on Shabbat or when they play on Yontif, and, and you could make an argument that Yom Kippur is so special and that this is kind of a way to communicate to Jews today and for all time that there are things more important than work. And, you know, it would have been great if Bregman had sat out. It would have been the sort of thing that would have been like a real legacy beyond anything he had done on the field. And it's it's kind of a shame in a way that, that he didn't decide to then all three of them didn't decide to do it. You know, on the other hand, this is a personal choice. Look, I, I have no idea how, how God works, but there's a lot of other stuff going on in the world, Liel. The pettiness of God caring about baseball, you know, is just uh, that alone is deeply kind of problematic to wrap one's mind around. And the Astros won the next day anyway, by the way. So
0: Kofax obviously, that was such a big deal, right, because of the time it took place, the the sort of status of Jews in the country. Then do we need KOFAXs today? Like, is it actually important to see Jewish players sit
3: out on Yom Kippur for, for young Jews everywhere? I think it is important. Not because Jews are like particularly imperiled in the United States today, but we're in sort of a culture where religion and community and all these other things might not be as automatic or as important as they were
1: in the 60s, for instance. It shouldn't be a baseball player, right? I mean, right. I I love baseball, but Americans don't care as much as they used to. I mean, really, it should be whoever replaces Tom Brady as the next Patriots quarterback, right? I mean, that's that's how it would matter. I mean, look, per,
3: speaking from personal experience, Jeff Halperin, former captain of the Washington Capitals and a Jew, sat out game, an early season game on Yom Kippur. And I believe he would sit out practice on Yom Kippur and like, I have no idea how religious Jeff Halpern is, but, like, you better believe that's something that every single Jewish Washington Capitals fan remembers. And you still see Jeff Halpern jerseys to this day, even though he was, like, never an all-star. He was, like, you know, he was a decent player, but there was a power to that decision, even when the game was meaningless. You could read more about the Koufax curse
2: uh, by going on to tabletmag.com and looking for Armin's excellent piece. Armin, thank you very much, and uh, good luck to the Nats. Yep, we're doing it.
1: All right, well... That'll teach those baseball players a lesson. Uh, finally, in News of the Jews, it is our 200th episode. So two things. First of all, we would like some emails or voicemails from people who have heard all 200 episodes. We would like some birthday wishes. What was your favorite episode? How have we changed since the beginning? What thoughts do you have for us on this, this milestone, right? So 914-570-4869, give us your 200th episode thoughts. Now, we wanted to reach out to an expert in Gomatria, the Jewish art, the Kabbalistic art of using numerology, a sign letters, numbers, so that, for example, the word chai, chet yud, is 18, which is why Jews often give money in denominations of 18. We found Chaya Sima Konigsberg, who is an expert on gematria, and we have her on the phone. First of all, Dr. Konigsberg, thank you so much for joining us. I, I
2: sort of heard from a mutual friend of ours that listening to us babbling on about gematria, we sort of maybe got some things a little bit wrong.
4: Oh, no. I don't think you got anything wrong. I just, I thought I could provide your listeners just with some background about the idea of in Jewish thought. Tell us. Yes, based on the idea that in the Torah, God created the world through speech. Um, In the story of creation, at each stage, it says, God said, let there be this, let there be that, and it was. So that's where the idea that there is a creative potency in the letters comes from. And then um, in the Midrash, and the Talmud, it talks about specific letters used in creation, and that's where this idea comes from, that, because there's also a numeric value to the letters, so it's not just the semantic meaning of the words that God used, but actually the numeric value of those words as well. That not only brought the world initially into creation, but retained this creative power. Depending on how you combine the letters, you sort of create something
0: different in reality. So this is like the original like Sudoku. I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um. I hear that. I <laughs> have
4: to process that.
2: <laughs> we love numbers so much, we even named a book of the Bible after it. Right. <laughs> there
4: you
2: go. So let me ask I'm you. i like,
4: these are like all the like first Jewish accountants,
2: right. you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Uh, we have now reached the, the milestone of our 200th episode. And so when we look at this number 200, what could Gematria tell us?
4: So the number 200 is the value of a letter, Resh. According to a midrashic work known as Ravi Raviyakiza, the letters of Raviyakiza, the letter Rash stands for the word Rosh, head at the time, the beginning, like we just celebrated Rosh Hashanah. Uh, Rash actually means head in Aramaic, just like Rosh means head in Hebrew. And who's the head? God existed before creation, will exist after creation. So first of all, 200 represents the eternity of God. The term Rosh, as in 200, is also found in the first word of the Torah, Bereshit, has Rosh in it. And that's the idea that God used the Torah and its 22 letters in creation. In terms of 200, it's actually not all good. But uh, the the Talmud actually says that the letter Resh refers to the Rasha, the wicked one. It's not a reflection on your podcast. (laughs)
2: uh, Or is (laughs) it? Or just
0: one of us, (laughs) maybe. You can
4: can choose. You can choose. So the Midrash talks about Resh 200 representing people in Jewish history who use their position of power not for the sake of heaven, but to oppress others. So, for example, the people who built the Tower of Babel um, who misuse this divine quality of speech and use it for destructive purposes so 200 really um, it represents leadership but the choice of how you use that position we're
2: going to go with that as a sign of kind of a Bashir thing of being the, the world's leading Jewish podcast and we're going to hope that we're going to continue and use that power for good and not I, for yeah even. I
0: love that idea of like we control that we have to be careful about the direction we take
2: it in Dr. Kenningsberg thank you so much for your time
0: sure I Sorry, can I interrupt? Yes. Whoa! It's Alana Newhouse, Tablet's editor in chief. Hi. Is this
5: episode two hundred? It is. Episode two hundred. Mm-hmm. Congratulations, guys! Yay! Right Thanks, around Alana. the new year. That's amazing. Do you know that um, two hundred in Gematria, Uh Sorry, I know you're gonna look at you're gonna start laughing at me. So you
2: know that we just had a Gamatria expert on the line <laughs> three minutes ago, who gave <laughs> no, us
5: no, fifteen minutes
2: no, on Gamatria? Wait a minute. Wait Please.
5: a minute. So, did they tell you what two hundred is? Go ahead. No, no, no. Did they? Uh, well, they gave us ahead. one, one option. Do you want to hear my option? Yeah. Um, Ein What's that? Infinity. Well, actually, Ein um, Sof is in Kabbalah. It's the idea of God, but God outside of um, God in His essence, God outside of His creation in the world. Um, it also, in Hebrew, uh, means unending or eternal. Um, which should be my gift to you. You should do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> it's, like, it's like some Chinese curse. Like You should live in interesting times. And I don't want you to make too much of it because according to Gematrix.com, 200 is also pork, Charlemagne, and dancing machine.
2: <laughs> which is, by the way, our nicknames for one another. <laughs> You should guess which one's which.
5: (laughs) But anyway, um, so I don't know how how it all combines into a big blessing for you guys, but I do wish you um, an eternity of doing this work for each other and for us and for all your listeners. Love you guys.
6: Thank
1: you. We love this. Thank you.
0: with Jodi Kantor. She's the Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times reporter who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and whose new book, She Said, co-written with Megan Toohey, continues that reporting. Welcome, Jodi. Thank you so much. So let's pretend I have not read the news for the past two
7: years. What is the Harvey Weinstein story? So the producer, who for a long time was the most powerful producer in Hollywood, who made all of these films that we grew up with, like Shakespeare in Love and Pulp Fiction Many, many others, it turns out, was allegedly terrorizing more than a generation of women. Um, he accumulated 40 years worth of allegations and nobody stopped him. So it turns out that behind this pop culture that we were all inhaling, behind the Academy Awards, behind the sort of entertainment industry as we knew it, it turns out that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of women with truly terrifying stories about Harvey Weinstein. Some of them involve physical violence. Some of them involve sexual harassment. But what the, the common denominator is essentially him using work to terrorize women. These were actresses or former assistants who wanted jobs. They came into his orbit with their aspirations, their dreams, their ambitions— And according to them, he offered a terrible bargain, which is if you want to work, you have to, in some sense, submit to be sexually. So that's something we figured out in the summer of 2017. What we never could have anticipated is that after we published our story, It helped spark the Me Too movement going global. Me Too was started by an activist named Tarana Burke uh, around 2007. It was devoted to kind of compassion and healing for sexual assault survivors. But what we, I mean, truly what's been staggering, I think, for, for all of us, not just Megan and I, is that the Weinstein story became a kind of solvent for secrecy. And after we published and after Ronan Farrow published his story, Women from all walks of life, from all around the globe, came forward telling eerily similar stories. And it was like we were suddenly able to recognize a pattern and a history that we had never fully appreciated or seen.
5: So this book
0: not just furthers your reporting, but shows readers what it was like behind the scenes as you got closer to the story, as you got leads, as there were setbacks, and as sort of threats and obstacles mounted. So let's start from the beginning. You dedicate this book to your daughters. Why is that?
7: So the goal of the book is to take you behind the scenes, as you said, these events have come to mean so much to so many people, and we wanted to bring you to the forefront of these events. We wanted you on the phone with us during the first hushed conversations with these actresses. We wanted you to meet the man, the man, by the way, not the woman, who was sort of the deep throat of the Weinstein investigation. We wanted you there with us. Here, actually, we're sitting here in the offices of the New York Times, and this is where we had our kind of final confrontations with Harvey Weinstein, which were very dramatic. you know. And in the book, we don't write about ourselves that personally. We we write about the journalism. It's sort of a procedural about what It's like to put together an investigation like this. But there is, I guess, that hint in the dedication. Um, I have two kids. Megan has one. I have one tween, but Megan and I each also had very young kids at the start of this investigation. Uh, Megan came back from maternity leave to work on the Weinstein story, and my younger daughter was only a year and a half when we started. So, look, we were doing this work professionally, not personally. But it had such meaning. I mean, in in a very universal way, I think that dedication represents what all parents want, which is to bring up your child in a world with dignity and safety.
0: So a lot of this book is about the women who helped you behind the scenes, who helped connect you to other women. And one of them uh, was Jill Kargman, who is a former guest on our show and a friend of the show. Can you tell us how she's involved in the story and how people like her really helped get you to the places
7: you ended up? Among the many obstacles to nailing the Weinstein story is that Megan and I didn't know any actresses. We're we're not entertainment reporters. This is not our field. The prior project I'd worked on before this was about Syrian refugees. And so early in the investigation, we're sitting in these offices saying like, okay, how do I get Ashley Judd's phone number? How do I get Salma Hayek's phone number? And we felt very strongly that we couldn't go through their agents or their publicists because those people were kind of gatekeepers. So getting those phone numbers became a kind of investigation unto itself. And we pulled it off in various ways. And one of them was through intermediaries. And there were people like Jill, who I would known for a long time, who were better connected than we were in the world of entertainment and volunteered to make very discreet introductions. She connected me to Jenny Connor, who connected us to Gwyneth Paltrow, Who's half Jewish, by the way? Of course. Uh, who really to our surprise became a huge help in this investigation and another kind of secret source.
0: So let's talk about that. You you obviously talked to a lot of both actresses and former employees, um, and not all of them were willing to go on the record, and a lot of the book is, is sort of trying to coax those women to go on the record or find women who would go on the record, even though for a lot of them that meant breaking you know, a settlement agreement that they had signed. So there's two very different women I'd like you to talk about and their decisions whether or not to participate and go on the record. Uh, Laura Madden and, of course, Gwyneth.
7: So I'm glad you asked about Laura Madden and Gwyneth Paltrow because they're very different figures. People think of the Weinstein story as being all about famous actresses, but it's really not. It's also about former assistants. And that's part of the way we broke the story because it was so hard to get famous actresses to go on the record that the assistants, in a way, are the backbone of the story because as investigative reporters, there was more stuff you could report about the assistants. They worked inside the company, so more people knew. The fact that they were employees of Weinstein made it even more sort of textbook sexual harassment. There were memos. There were human resources records. There were other employees who had remembered what happened, Where some of what happened with the actresses was very isolated. So Laura Madden was an assistant, and on the very first day she met Weinstein in the early 90s on a film shoot in Ireland, she was assigned to staff his hotel room. And that's what you did as an assistant when Weinstein was on the road. His hotel suite became kind of his office, and you had to work there all day You were there to basically fulfill any need he had. And so she goes to this appointment as she tells the story filled with hope and ambition. And, you know, she's a relatively sheltered girl. She's grown up in the Irish countryside. She's very, she's very excited, um, for this gig. And then what plays out in that hotel room is just a terrible story of assault. And it's all mixed in with work because he's offered her a job in the Miramax London office, which is like her dream. And she's afraid that she's horrified by what he's asking her to do, but she's afraid that if she doesn't participate, she's not going to get the job. So anyway, all these years later, we meet Laura Madden and, you know, somebody once described this book as a kind of competition between the cowardice of Weinstein's enablers and the bravery of our sources. And I really think of Laura when I think of the bravery of our sources, because long story short, Laura becomes one of the first two women to go on the record about Weinstein. The other of course is Ashley Judd and Laura does it even though she's about to have reconstructive surgery an mastectomy for breast cancer. Her surgery is practically colliding with the publication date of the story. We're sure we're going to lose her for that reason, and she goes ahead anyway. Gwyneth Paltrow played a different role. She picked up the phone to us very early on at a time when almost nobody in Hollywood was answering our calls. And the story she told us was really shocking, not because it's the worst Weinstein sexual assault account, it's not. And it's an account of sexual harassment and then being threatened afterwards. But in part because it's her, because it caused us to say to ourselves: wait a second, if even Gwyneth Paltrow, his biggest star, has this kind of story at the very bedrock of her career with him then who else was affected if if even she's not immune? And also because of the threat he made to her, which was, a long story short, she told Brad Pitt her boyfriend. Weinstein was very upset that she told Pitt. Weinstein confronted Paltrow over having told Brad Pitt. And he threatened her. She was signed up for Emma, her first star-making role, but they hadn't shot the movie yet. And she was really afraid she was gonna lose that job. And that threat makes a story like this more consequential because there's work on the line. So anyway, long story short, Paltrow really enlists herself in this investigation. She tries to help find other women in Hollywood who will talk. Weinstein is totally paranoid about whether she's speaking to us or not. He even shows up at a party at at her house at one point early and she's upstairs and she's terrified and she's texting and calling me from the bathroom and saying, what should I do? The first really hard part for Paltrow was the decision of whether to go on the record immediately or not, and we take readers through that decision and she ends up going on the record for the second story, not the first. Even she is just very afraid this is going to turn into a kind of tabloid trashy story that she's just she's anticipating weeks of headlines about her and Harvey Weinstein. And sex, which, again, just really shows how hard it is for for everybody, anybody to come forward. But I think the story of Paltrow in this book really speaks to the fact that when you begin an investigation, you just cannot make assumptions about what really happened, and you can't make assumptions about who will help you and who won't.
0: The interesting thing about Gwyneth's role is that he seems so paranoid about her coming forward because he sort of uses her— to
7: manipulate all the other women afterwards. Well, that is the terrible recognition that she has after the story breaks. I mean, I have to tell you, like, part of the dynamic of information is that once you take something that was secret and you put it out in the world, you never know what else you're going to learn because other people are going to pop up with more information. And what happened, and we had sort of glimpses of this before the story broke, but it became much clearer afterwards, is after Gwyneth comes out and says, he sexually harassed me, he threatened me, and no, I I never slept with him, all of these other Weinstein victims are like, what Weinstein said to me in the course of assaulting or harassing me was, everybody does it, Gwyneth did it, don't you want what she has? And so I'm hearing this, uh, Gwyneth is hearing this. She actually spent part of the fall and winter of 2017 on the phone with some of these women who had experienced this. It was very, very painful to hear. So her most painful and difficult moment comes after the story breaks because she's realized that he's taken her name in vain. This appears to have been a kind of pyramid scheme in which he used her name and the things that people envy her for, the you know the reputation, the wealth, the you know sort of image of a perfect life, he appears to have weaponized that in his predation. I just want to be really clear: Weinstein denies all of this
0: so harvey Weinstein. Is Jewish, and it it sort of complicates the story for a lot of our audience who feel horror at what he did, and then the sense of shame and discomfort at knowing that he was Jewish. Unlike, you know, Bill Cosby, Bill O'Reilly, this this hits a little bit closer to home because. You know, that like Shonda for the Goyim, and this idea of like this, this bad for the Jews.
7: And I'm wondering what ways did the Jewishness of the story play out for you? Okay, so the first and most important thing to say is that I can sit here in the offices of the New York Times where we've now devoted two years of reporting across the paper to this kind of behavior. And I can tell you it is completely universal. It's a problem in India. It's a problem in the African-American community. It's a problem up and down the socioeconomic scale. It's a problem in basically every industry. Uh, The sort of power of Me Too is that we've recognized that this is pretty much a universal problem. It's very hard to find a sector of society that has not been affected by it. So I can tell you based on a ton of reporting that I don't think there's anything particularly Jewish about this kind of behavior. At the same time, I totally recognize that this story is deeply uncomfortable for Jews, as is the Jeffrey Epstein story. I think, in part, because both stories fit the stereotype of like the avaricious, manipulative Jew with a lot of money and power who uses it to bad ends. And that's obviously very, very upsetting. You know, I get that that's upsetting, but it's not uncommon. I mean, look at the reaction in the black community to the Cosby story. African-Americans really struggled with that. Cosby was an African-American hero. The whole point of Cosby is that he he had this wholesome image playing this great dad on television at a time when there were so many negative stereotypes about African Americans. And so to learn the truth about his sexual predation, it was just, I mean, it was devastating, I think, for a lot of us and particularly devastating for African Americans. In terms of the Weinstein story, and this is true of the Epstein story as well, by the way, you know, part of what's weird is that some of the details of the story are Jewish, I mean, Weinstein used a team of Israeli private ex-spies to try to dupe and manipulate me and other people, other reporters, and and more importantly, sources, uh, women with stories of alleged predation. The link to Black Cube was made uh, in part by Ehud Barak, the Israeli ex-prime minister. So that part of it is, I think, surreal for a lot of us. It, it certainly was for me. I mean, I'm a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. I speak decent Hebrew. I've spent a lot of time in Israel. So finding out first through Ronan Farrow's reporting that these were the people trying to dupe and manipulate me, it was um, it was pretty surreal.
0: It also plays into these like sort of horrible anti-Semitic tropes that like this ex-Massad company following people for, and for all these nefarious ends. And I mean, Harvey himself is this like just grotesque caricature. You're almost, it's like, it's just all of the details just seem so horrific when you think of them
7: in a Jewish context. Right. I mean, I think it's that, it's fear that it's playing into a negative Jewish stereotype for sure.
0: But something interesting was happening on the flip side at least um, anecdotally you know people were saying to me they liked that you were Jewish and that that, that if if he had to be Jewish then so good that he, one of his slayers should also be Jewish was that a pressure that you felt in any way or was that a- expressed to you at all
7: you know what i just really felt was the clear moral compass as a journalist as a jew as a human being to pursue this story for me it was really pretty straightforward. Now, what was interesting is that some of our key sources were Jewish too. Amy Israel, who is the Hollywood executive and former Miramax executive, who gave me a really important tip on what turned out to be some very central stories of Weinstein predation. It's a story of Zelda Perkins and Rowena Chu, two former assistants at the company Um, These stories involved a lot of cover-up and some particularly egregious secret settlements that were used to silence these women. Amy Israel is the first one who sort of tipped me off to what she thought might have happened. And Amy is Jewish. And in fact, I think her mom started the preschool at my synagogue. So she was a complete stranger to me, but it turns out that, you know, we had this sort of connection and rapport. Um, The other person is... Irwin Ryder, Irwin Ryder is more than anybody else the kind of deep throat of the Weinstein investigation. He was Harvey's former accountant for 30 years. He worked by his side and did the books, first for Miramax, then for the Weinstein Company. And what nobody knew is that Irwin had initially overlooked a lot of signs of problematic behavior. But starting in 2014, he had become a lot more alarmed about what was going on. And one of the stories we tell in this book is like, two years inside the Weinstein company when these stories of predation are becoming more and more visible to the top leadership, what happens? Does anybody try to stop him? Is the company going to address this? How can a company become so complicit in predation? And Erwin is a player in that because he's very alarmed and he's trying to figure out what to do, but he fails. So when I came to him in September 2017 wanting to talk, I didn't know it, but I was talking to, in a way, a perfect source because he was somebody who was so frustrated that he hadn't been able to act inside the company. And so talking to a journalist became a sort of last resort. But part of what was interesting, and we didn't include it in the book, but I'm happy to say it here for a Jewish audience, is that Erwin and I have really similar backgrounds. Um, I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. My grandmother's still alive or when it's the child of Holocaust survivors, we had grown up in very similar circumstances, and our families had even gone to bungalow colonies down the road from each other in the Catskills. And so, you know, these relationships with sources are professional relationships. But in the course of talking, you're often trying to find ways to relate to one another, whether it's talking about your kids or talking about sports or whatever. And for Irwin and I, we realized very early on that we had common backgrounds and he was my lawnsman.
0: It is kind of nice that there's like a Jewish accountant as like the, a small hero in this story.
7: Look, if that's a comfort to your listenership, great. And, and I think what it would just, I think it just says that there were people on every side of this thing i mean let that just stand as a counter to any sweeping stereotypes about you know jews this or black people that or asian americans this like it life is complicated People are complicated, and let that just serve as a counter to sweeping stereotypes about Jews or any other group for that matter.
0: It's interesting because someone like Bernie Madoff, he preyed on the Jewish community specifically, and that was such a a, a troubling aspect of what he did. Kind of betrayal. Exactly. and You know, Weinstein wasn't really like that. But, you know, Miramax was named after his mom, Miriam, and his dad, Max, I think was definitely culturally identified by the world as, as very much a Jewish person. But it seems like in his last gasp at a defense of himself, he gives this very strange statement and he sort of references his bar mitzvah and his mother, Miriam, and he plays the Jewish card almost. And were you surprised
7: that he did that? I felt that a few times in the investigation, like a tiny touch of like, Jody, come on, like, I'm one of you, like, I identify with you in some ways, even like in terms of, he talked about it with the New York Times, he, you can read in the book, I mean, the final confrontations with him were pretty dramatic, and he veered between threatening us and flattering us, and one of the ways he kept trying to flatter us is saying, essentially, like a version of, do you know that I am the world's most loyal reader of the New York Times? It was a kind of like, we belong together, we're on the same side of this thing. I mean, I imagine that it, you're not vulnerable to that at all. Look, the trick to nailing the story was being immune to any kind of manipulation or spinning. Harvey Weinstein had a remarkable ability to create his own facts and to create his own reality. And our job was to stand firm against that in, in any way we could. And it was complicated because even as he was kind of fighting us at the end, we were actually trying to be really fair to him. So it's this balancing act of on the one hand, resisting all intimidation and all spin, but on the other hand, truly trying to be fair and saying, you know, what is your side of the story? What kind of statement do you want to give to us about these allegations?
0: So it's interesting, this book comes out right before the high holidays, and there are a
7: lot of these ideas of reckoning and repentance that run through this story. Oh, I mean, these are such high holiday stories. And, and that's how they played out calendar-wise. We published the first Weinstein story on October 5th and it was right after Yom Kippur because I remember that was a Thursday and Yom Kippur had been the prior weekend that year and I had tried to go to synagogue I am a synagogue member I go to synagogue on Yom Kippur but it was really hard for me that year because I mean we were in the throes of finishing the story so I was working what felt like 24 hours a day but also It was really hard for me to think about my own repentance and what I had done wrong because it was so completely overshadowed by these allegations against Weinstein and the horror of them. And I remember trying to sit in synagogue and it was difficult. And also, look, the liturgy on the High Holidays is pretty patriarchal. You know, Avinu Malkenu is pretty, like literally a male prayer. And it... Normally I'm fine with the traditional liturgy, but I sat in synagogue and it felt a little wrong, like where this prayer is so male and on this Yom Kippur, of all Yom Kippurs, what I really need is a sort of female-driven voice about this. So actually now that I'm remembering, what I did is I pulled up the Barbara Streisand version of a Avinu Malkinu on my phone, which if you've never heard it, you have got to listen to it. It is such a knockout. And it's interesting because of course she's doing the traditional prayer, which is very male, but her voice is just, you know, this iconic female voice. And that year that felt a little better than than listening in synagogue. So the last section of the book features
0: a group of women that you gathered together at Gwyneth's house, actually, um, that includes Ashley Judd and Christine Blasey Ford, who testified at the Kavanaugh hearings, as well as Kim Lawson, a woman who fought McDonald's where she worked for better sexual harassment protocol. I'm curious what you learned about gathering these very different women and what they figured out about their shared experiences that
7: united them. So we were really nervous for this gathering because looking around that room was like a history of our reporting, you know, three years, ranging from the allegations against Trump that Megan had reported in 2016 to these Weinstein victims who had been so central to our work, to Christine Blasey Ford, who was still in a pretty vulnerable situation at that point. It was just a couple of months after her testimony, and she was just beginning to emerge a little bit more into the world so we did this as a group interview. It was not like a private therapy session, but part of what was interesting was seeing the contrast in their stories because some of them had really been treated like heroines, like Ashley Judd has just been you know celebrated over and over again for being the first actress to go on the record about Weinstein, and then other of them had had much rougher paths, Rachel Crooks, who came forward about Trump two years before Christine Blasey Ford, et cetera et cetera. And part of what was really interesting was the way they started to interact and kind of coach each other. Like, for example, at one point, Ford was talking about really having trouble with what was written about her on the internet and struggling because she was, you know, she was going online and hearing these terrible things said about her that were not true. And so immediately, Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow swoop in, and they're like, Experts in public life. They have lived under the glare of tabloids and all sorts of public commentary and criticism and had all their ups and downs in the press for a long time. And they start coaching her. And Gwyneth Paltrow says to her, You know, they only tackle you when you're holding the ball. And Ashley Judd says to her, like, basically says, You've got to stop reading about yourself on the internet. And Ashley has this great line where she says something like, If an alcoholic can avoid a drink one day at a time, then I can avoid the comment section on the internet. And Blasey Ford is like sort of fascinated to hear that these women, they essentially don't read about themselves anymore because it's just too toxic.
0: They're sort of the perfect people to coach you through this life-changing experience. Right, which
7: was so interesting because actresses have played a kind of unique role in this whole reckoning. And to me, that was sort of like their final contribution was to take what they had learned in the world of entertainment and use it to help other women.
0: Can you leave us with something that our listeners can take with them into their lives in 5780 and beyond, you know, whether they've experienced some type of workplace harassment or harassment outside the workplace, whether they may have witnessed behavior like this in the workplace and
7: are unsure of what to do about it. Can you, what should we all be doing to fight this? Well, look, I mean, I'm not an activist. It's not my role to give advice. But what I can say as a reporter is that these stories matter. And that I think what the Weinstein story proves in particular is that facts and uh, dogged reporting and the careful airing of very private, sensitive stories really can create change, even at this very fractious time. Even at a time when everything feels stuck, you you never know what kind of impact your story may have on other people.
0: Jodi Cantor, thank you so much for talking with me and for all the work you've done. The book is She Said, and it's available wherever you purchase your reading material. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to
6: call alright?
1: To the mailbox. First of all, thanks to all of you who called into our listener line with your ideas of Jewish hell. They keep coming. Apparently, that question really got to you guys, and you guys gave us so many terrific ones that we didn't have time to get on the air. Thank you so much for contributing to our newest Jewish Encyclopedia Omnibus episode last week with your ideas of Jewish Hell. Now Here's a letter that came in that we didn't have a chance to get to uh, in time for the high holidays, and we feel really sad that we missed it. We We want to help this soul out. He writes, Hi, Unorthodox. I'm a Jew in a large city who grew up without much religious upbringing, mostly removed from the quite sizable Jewish community in the city. My family get together and eat on holidays when we can, but otherwise don't keep kosher or go to Shabbat or shul or observe in any other way. I haven't had my bar mitzvah and I'm happily living in sin with my Muslim partner. I will be missing our family's Rosh Hashanah dinner, and I usually find myself with regret on the High Holy Days that I'm not observant. I get my religion by proxy, studying philosophy at university or listening to Leonard Cohen as spiritual practice. I cannot, however, bring myself to go to a synagogue due to my feeling of alienation from observant Jews. What advice would you have to an anxious secular to break into greater participation? Kind regards, J. Now, I got this letter. I was so moved, right? Because here's someone who on the one hand is saying, I can't bring myself to participate because I feel such alienation. And then he asks us, how can I participate? What should I do? Stephanie, do you have any thoughts for this gentleman? Yeah. I mean, look, I spent Yom Kippur dipping into different services, right? When
0: something shifted in a way I didn't really feel like listening to, I went to something else. And I think that the idea of like setting foot in a synagogue is very scary for people, right? Especially if you have this idea of observant Jews as being some kind of monolith, which is obviously not the case. However, I think that there's so many ways you can sort of connect intimately and and independently right now so that when you feel ready, you can go to the synagogue, but you can sort of try so much out online right now. Liel's not looking happy with that answer.
2: I'm of 18 minds here. Uh, On on the one hand, I mean, this this listener clearly has this deep passion to connect and there's something almost strange about him saying like, well, I really want to do this but at the same time I don't think I'll feel comfortable because as Stephanie just said, there are so many options out there. Just go and just do it. Just go and try something. Uh, On the other hand, I also think that the thought that the synagogue uh, ought to be the end all and be all of Jewish religious practice is is also a fallacy. I think that person could gain so much from just finding any avenue that makes him feel connected, uh, be it studying some text, be it listening to some, you know, piece of music that really helps him connect. Just just the practice, just the act of reaching out and thinking about this and engaging in this seriously and opening his heart to this uh, would be great. And I think we should really all, if there's one lesson to to this great joyous day of forgiveness that we just experienced in Yom Kippur, is that you've been forgiven, now open your heart and plunge yourself right into it in whatever way that feels right for you.
1: I think both of you are, are onto something. I have a particular suggestion about how to plunge in. I think often when people think about engaging with Judaism, they're thinking, how can I find a space that will do something for me? you know, that will nourish me or that will make me feel more comfortable or that will reconnect me. And sometimes that's the wrong way in. Sometimes the way in is to say, how can I find an opportunity to go do something for someone else? And it sounds counterintuitive, right? Because this fellow is looking for something for his own soul. But do this. Have coffee with four or five different rabbis. One could be reform or conservative. One could be orthodox. One could be something else, unaffiliated. And with each of them, just talk to them. See if, if you like them. And if you like them, say, I'd like to give something back. Is there something, some way I could help the community? And one rabbi might say, yeah, you could help make a minion. We might need a 10th man sometime, 10th person. One rabbi might say, actually, there's an elderly person who's in hospice who needs a visitor. One rabbi might say, oh, you have coding skills. Help us with our website. And then do that. Go seek an opportunity to do something for other people, and then see where that leads you. And it might lead you into connection with other people and down a path or on a journey that will surprise you. That's my advice. Amen, Stella. Okay, on to the next letter. You'll remember that we were talking a little while ago about whether there's a Jewish accent in other countries, the way that some people can tell if they're talking to a Jewish speaker in America. And we got this voicemail from uh, a listener in Australia.
8: Oh, hey, Unorthodox. This is Michael from a calling from Sydney, Australia. Um, Love the podcast. It's amazing to hear what's going on over in the US, in New York City and around the world. So thank you so much. I'm calling in relation to a little discussion you had about a month ago. I'm a bit behind with my episodes um, number five about Jewish um, accents and Stephanie feeling a bit, I think, offended and Liel by the kind of observation. I'm a bit with a mark on this I, I definitely agree when you made the comment about people in in Melbourne and in other places and Sydney too knowing that they're Jewish by their accent um, definitely the case um, in my experience people who have grown up in more closed Jewish circles have a particular like inflection so when they're talking there's often you know inflecting and it's like a really interesting particularity of the like way people I think, that was a very lame attempt (laughs) trying to recreate it it's hard to do it on the spot but totally recognize it so I'm with you Mark probably somehow inherited and I think I'm thinking about Ashkenazi Jews here in
1: Sydney specifically alright now that was terrific but you know what's even more terrific have a load of this voicemail that we got hey guys this is Shay
9: and Shava Oh. For the listeners who don't know, we met at Unorthodox's the live Hitchburg podcast. live show. Pittsburgh live show. And we both spoke and stayed together with the rest of the Unorthodox crew. Yes. And that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. And now Shay is in Cincinnati celebrating Rosh Hashanah with me. Gentile of the Week that year. That's right. Jew of the Week and Gentile of the Week having Rosh Hashanah together. And we felt that this was a momentous occasion That Unorthodox Podcast had to be aware of since you were the ones that introduced us in the first place. And we together want to wish all of the Unorthodox listeners a very happy, healthy, meaningful, and fulfilling 5780. Yes. Is that right? That's the year. The the gentle is telling the Jew uh, what year it is. Yeah, he's got it. It's 5780. uh, We hope that all of you have a prosperous, happy, and... Healthy uh, 5780. All right. We love you all. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Chag Sameach. Shana Tova. Goodbye. Goodbye.
1: Whoa. Now to end, something very, very touching, and it ties into our birthday. This is from a convert who listened to all 198 of our episodes, and, and this was without question the voicemail
9: of the week. Hi, friends. Uh, my name is Beth, and I'm graduating from the unauthorized, unofficial Unorthodox School of Conversion, with my Bait, Dean, and Dunk scheduled for Friday, October 25th, and I wanted to reach out and just say thank you for the crash course in Jewish culture that you have provided. I've been studying and cultivating a Jewish life for over two years now, and I truly could not have made this amazing journey without all 198, at this point that I'm calling, uh, episodes of Unorthodox. So mazel tov on the book release. I can't wait to read it, and I'm sure that it will only further my education. Finally, on a personal note, Liel, I thought you are going to be in town for Arts Matters Shabbat. So I'm going to try and go to the Temple Israel event in Boston. But if you're looking for a place to daven on Saturday, October 26th, and you want to hear me do my first aliyah, I'll be at Havarat Shalom in Somerville, Massachusetts at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. And there will be um, a wonderful Delicious, Kiddush. The salmon uh, will be amazing, I'm sure. And uh, the theme is Judaism, so you'll fit right in. Thanks again, guys, for all your help.
1: And mazel tov to you. Welcome to the tribe.
2: Our guest... Peter Pomoranson, the author of the new book, This Is Not Propaganda Adventures in the War Against Reality. Peter, can I tell you the thing about you? Are you comfortable with that? Not really, but go on. Both of your books are complete masterpieces. Both of them have this absolutely terrifying combination of being, at one and the same time, the most wildly depressing depictions of the worst tendencies of our you know, moment in time, and yet at the same time being so incredibly entertaining and, and vivid and full of life and funny. Uh, so before we get to how you pull
6: that off, tell us briefly what this book is about. I suppose... Essentially, the book is a way to understand the deeper reasons. You know, this sounds very boring, but our current kind of like crisis in the information space, what some people call the post-truth moment, disinformation, all the stuff that we talk about a lot. I'm going to use a very unpopular word that I don't use in the book, propaganda, which is clearly transformed. But it's an attempt to do so through stories and through actually family memoir. This book starts off as a family memoir telling my family story because my parents were in the thick of the great propaganda wars of the Cold War. And then I talk about my time today, sort of 40 years on, trying to negotiate today's propaganda wars and finding that the whole field has changed. You know, I really do hope the book feels like stories and characters and not just media theory, which are words that aren't interesting to everyone. If I may be so crude about it, the thesis is as follows. It used to be uh, way back in the
2: pre-historical days of the 20th century, right, that we thought that the paradigm was censorship versus free speech. You're either the Soviets who try to suppress speech or you're like the dissidents who try to have samizdat copies of some book going around. And then these say something really interesting happened. We live in an age now in which is a torrent of information. And actually, it is just as easy, if not much easier, to control what you know, what you feel, what you believe, just by very,
6: very, very shrewdly manipulating information. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, I mean, I I get another sort of step. So we basically had a formula in the 20th century about what constituted a democratic information space. So freedom of expression, pluralism, a kind of ethos that we all agreed that sort of impartiality and lack of bias and accuracy were good things. And kind of an idea of the free personality who reads and expresses themselves and, you know, listens to jazz and loves modern art and all these things kind of came together. And really maybe perhaps the most important element, the idea that power was scared of the truth. I mean, at the end of the day, the journalistic mission was, aha, I have found the truth, evil man. And the president kind of crumbles. And all those have gone, if not out the window, all those have taken a big battering and kind of axioms and metaphors that we all took for granted. The marketplace of ideas. You know, the cure for bad information is more information. These kind of you know, theses that we all lived with are really under strain.
2: And now we have more tools in the hand of the powerful to sort of manipulate what it is, how we think, how we see things. I want to start with an example. And one of my favorite ones is, is pretty minor. You're sitting with a person who turns out is the descendants of, I think, a baron or something like this, who's the head of the Brexit campaign digital media team right oh, he's the son he's the son the son of, of a baron no, or I a think baronet or count something like that yeah he's well posh that's not that unusual in britain and he basically sort of explains to you while talking about his work how politics have changed. He says something like, it used to be, you're basically either left or right. You know, you either read The Guardian or you read The Telegraph. And each one of these decisions sort of connoted a whole host of worldviews and actions and attitudes that came with it. Well, now you're actually segmenting people and you have the uh, ability because of the internet to reach very, very, very specific groups of people. The, The brilliant idea that he targeted animal rights activists by saying, If you support staying in the EU, you're supporting approving of Spanish farmers raising bulls for bullfights, which is like the smallest kind of convoluted thing. And yet that was his ability to basically take the population at large and and cut it into a million little segments and therefore create these very weird and surprising coalitions that don't even feel like our traditional notion of a coalition.
6: Well, they're they're not coalitions. This is the thing. Uh, And I heard the same thing from people... Uh, Across the world, the Trump campaign did something similar. What you do is do very, very different targeting to very, very different causes. I think he talked about at least 70 different types in a population of 20 million. People who are against immigration and people who are really concerned about animal rights aren't necessarily the same types of people. They might even be the polar opposites. You definitely don't want to put them in a room together. They'll start fighting. Quite the opposite. You're selling each of them that the solution to their little issue is the very vague enemy, the non-people, the elite, the EU, and they're the problem. And you have to take back control from them or etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. The way populism, which I look at a lot in the book, appears to the spin doctor is a strategy. And it's a strategy that appears because the old ideas and categories that constituted parties and nations and political beliefs have disappeared. This kind of populism as a strategy is something that was already very apparent in Russia in the 1990s. So I talked to Putin's early spin doctors and how they already approached politics from a, a very similar vantage point. And the skill is to take these very, very different magnets. Iron filings, and you take a magnet and they all coalesce around one little moment. But you've got to keep it vague. It has to be united around a feeling rather than an ideology. So take back control, make America great again, the many, not the few. Raise Russia off its knees, which was Putin's great one. Um, it has to be very, very vague. You can't unite them around an ideology, which I'm very skeptical about when people say right-wing populism, left-wing populism. Genuine populism doesn't do right and left. Right. You're already already lost if you're doing right and left. It's just wrath. It's just anger. It's just hope. What is it? Certainly in the examples we look at and that I look at in the book, it's all based around some form of anger. The theorists of populism say that's kind of embedded in, you know, embedded in our psychology. You have to have, you know, the skill of the propagandists to unite causes and feelings, identities and feelings. That's what you have to do. So if you haven't tapped into the emotion, forget it.
2: We're here talking about some of the attributes that are happening in every Western democracy that we're seeing here in the States and in England and elsewhere. But some of the examples are considerably darker than that. I want you to tell us the incredible story that you
6: reported out of the Philippines. With the Philippines, one has to understand that during the Cold War, the Philippines was ruled by a military dictatorship. They had a secret police who censored speech, there was a tiny underground printing press called the mosquito press everybody that the state didn't like whether they were liberal or whatever was labeled a communist and had to face really quite spectacular forms of torture so that all falls in 1988 you know in a way sort of 1989 in the fall of the berlin wall kind of actually was preempted by what happened in manila a huge people powered revolution millions out on the street to get ferdinand marcos to get Ferdinand marcos out decades later you have a new president who's literally rehabilitating marcos as in he's taking him out of the ground and reburied him as mm-hmm. a national hero he's in cahoots with marcus's family who've remained very influential and in a way the effects of what he's doing can be very similar to the marcos regime in the sense that he's going after opposition journalists and critics and the people who can remember the Marcos year say, wow, you know, this feels like such an echo of that time. And yet the tactics are radically different because Marcos imposed censorship, while here, quite the opposite, Duterte's main modus operandi, are cyber militias, online mobs, and troll farms. So I talked both to the people who create the troll campaigns and the victims of them. So for the victims, it's kind of surreal. I mean, suddenly online, you have these swarms of online accounts saying, you know, you're a spy, your criticism untrue, you're fake news, sound, you know, the sort of stuff you get here. That changes the mood in the country, journalists start walking down the streets, or you don't really have streets in Manila, through the malls and start people shouting at them, you're a traitor, why are you criticizing our good president? You're saying even though we may dismiss
2: it as sort of like, oh, it's just stuff people say online, man, it's just tweets, does, it's not real life, it doesn't matter.
6: You're saying that it it seeps through to real life, it actually has purchase. So there it even ends in arrests. So it starts with that, that sort of makes defame someone, makes the critics be very vulnerable, and then they start doing the tax cases and stuff. The end effect is actually a real world action. But Here's the difference: when critics of the government start saying, "My God, we're under attack! We're under attack!" This is a form of, you know, government pressure. You know, the government goes, "No, it's not. These are just concerned citizens articulating their freedom of expression." You Democrats always fought for freedom of expression. Well, here it is. You know, it's not necessarily incitement to violence. It's not illegal. You know, and go and prove that we're connected to it. You know, so back in the old days, you knew, you know, like, Marxist secret agents were clearly Marxist secret agents. Now it's like you know you can't even tell what's real or not you know these kind of like weird swarms of activity online can we defend ourselves against this That's a very good question i I think I think we do need a regulatory breakthrough meaning what meaning social media now has strict rules to what can and cannot be shared Taking down content is going to be very very hard for lots of reasons because the freedom of speech argument is actually very it's pretty coherent you know it's pretty solid disinformation is not illegal right? First Amendment is the right to lie. We're talking about normal people online. Yeah, We're right. not talking about publications or broadcasters. We're talking about what seems to be normal people online. So I think the focus has to be on regulating types of behavior. If something seems organic, but it's actually a coordinated campaign, it's that deceptive behavior which matters. And that's what we need to address. So we need to have an, an internet where we can see... Who is behind what uh, around us? It's not so much about single accounts or something like that. It's about coordinated behaviour. So just to see the data flow would help us well, see the data flow. And no, but then I think regulate against that. If it's a, if it's a deceptive campaign against that gets taken down. It's the behaviour that matters, not the content. How do you defend yourself? And we're certainly seeing this in you
2: know contemporary American politics against uh, a machine that manufactures this cynical uh, thread that tells you nothing is true and, and abandon hope,
6: he who enters? <sighs> That's a really good question. I think it's worth looking at two things, just to give us a clue about how to structure our, our research and exploration about what to do. So the idiom that all these guys work with, whether it's Putin or your guy, Donald, or this guy Salvini, or Duterte, or Bolsonaro, or all these guys. They have kind of two things in common. One of them is they don't really have clear ideologies in the 20th century sense, but they all use conspiracy as a way to explain the world. And not just kind of conspiracies that you're there to buttress a theory of how the world works. The communists and the Nazis had conspiracy theories, but, you know, they were meant to prove that ultimately it was all the Jews, it was all the bourgeoisie's fault. Now the conspiracies are kind of like conspiracies within conspiracies within conspiracies. The catchphrase of the Russian Sean Hannity, Dmitry Kisilov, is a coincidence. I don't think so. (laughs) <laughs> and he spends his shows doing these almost kind of like almost sort of demonically beautiful conspiracies, which have no end. Right. You know, it's not just like, oh, and someone is responsible for everything. And Trump does this as well a little bit. Well, you just don't know. You know, I, you know I've heard different things about what happened. there. A lot of people are saying Yeah, a lot of people yeah. are saying it's like conspiracy is the vision of the world. Right. And what's the effect of that? The effect of that is that if the whole world is full of dark hidden forces that you can never fathom, that means you, the little guy, can't change anything. It's a way of undermining agency. So it's actually a very old authoritarian trick, yeah? It's to undermine agency. And as a result, look, you live in a dark, scary world. You need a strong leader to guide you. Only Putin and Trump can save you in this world of infinite conspiracies. So I think there you don't work with the conspiracy theories themselves. You work with the effects. So how do you restore agency? So I think a lot of the time we be ignoring what the Trumps and the Putin say, but focus on activity which shows people that they can change something. So that's one thing, that sense of change. The other thing, what they all have in common, these guys, is none of them have a discourse about the future. They all wallow in these misty no- and often very warped, sometimes very nasty nostalgias. O- of the past, yeah. Yeah, well, it's not the past, it's nostalgia. Nostalgia what? isn't precise. Imagine. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's bullshit, basically. I mean, it's not a real kind of, you know, founding yourself in the past and a real analysis of it. It's, it's this kind of, like, stuff about making America great again or bringing Russia off its knees or what what on earth we're doing with Brexit. You know, it's that stuff. And that's very, very interesting because the main point is they have no ideas of the future, no ideas of progress. Yeah. And in the book, I talk a lot about how what we call post-truth, this kind of weird moment where politicians don't care about being caught lying, where factuality itself is not valued anymore as part of political discourse, is deeply connected to a lack of any idea of the future. Because when you have... An idea of the future that you can articulate, you need facts to prove that you're getting there. You need evidence to show you're achieving it. Factual discourse is kind of a subset of having an idea of the future. Right. So if we start producing journalism and political discussions, which move away from kind of reality show knocking heads together as we have with your current US presidential debates and towards generating conversations about the future then I think we move away from this kind of like fact-free conversation, away from nostalgia, something quite precise, that we can actually show that we're achieving, and then that sense of process and progress is restored. So I think those are the key things that I would look at, agency and an idea of the future, which is easy to say, but, you know, I'm not talking about great political philosophy doing this. I'm talking about sort of like journalism and public discourse doing this. Since this is the stuff you report on, since this
2: is the world that you've chosen for some reason to immerse yourself in, I want to know how you personally cope with it. Give us sort of
6: like good life advice and on how to keep human amidst all this grimness. Firstly, the, my book is full of people who who are fighting in this space, who do much more than I do, and you get inspired by them. You know, However bad we think it is, you know, in 2019, there was a lot harsher in uh, 1976, Kiev. So, so I hear. But it is true, like when you, certainly when I covered the Syria stuff, it's soul-destroying, and I only covered it for a couple of months, and the people who work on it all the time, I actually don't know how they get through the sense of hopelessness. Uh, I talked to a lot of humanitarian Workers um, who covered Syria and they did everything. You know they're filing reports for, for the Red Cross, for Médecins Sans Frontières. They're going to the UN. You know they're showing them Samantha Power. Nothing changes. Uh, so how they get through, I don't know. But also in the book, I do talk a lot of people who fight, who fight back, and they're inspiring. So there's this guy in Mexico I talk to, there's Sergio Popovich, who's a kind of like, um, never say die revolutionary. There's Maria Ressa and Glenda Gloria in the Philippines. All these people are inspirations. They're amazing. And and you walk away from them kind of just like humbled and inspired. But that, so that's, that's the kind of the nice, excu- that's the nice line. I'm surrounded by people who are full of strength, but... But deep down, I, I think what saves me is, is the fact that I'm actually sort of an Eastern European Jew. I was still born in Kiev, and I guess I'm just imbued with this sense that, you know, they're not putting us in cattle trucks. Right. So when, or a lot of my lovely middle-class liberal friends in London had kind of protracted nervous breakdowns after Brexit because they'd never seen the world they knew and the assumptions they had turned around. They'd grown up as part of the EU, that's what we were, and suddenly they weren't, and just the ground gave way beneath their feet. Having lived a lot, in Eastern Europe, both as an adult, but also being imbued well, you've seen with that, plot. yeah, it, it, you know, everything is constantly turned upside down. The
2: world collapsing. I means it's Wednesday. It's yeah, fine. exactly. Yeah. So you
6: learn, you learn that great kind of like deeply, kind of like mystical sort of Ukrainian shrug, um, which is very helpful. Peter Pomeranziv, thank you so so much. Thank you.
2: Mazel Tovs. Liel, what do you have for us? I would like to wish a very hearty mazel tov to the greatest New Zealand Jew, Taika Waititi Cohen, the director of the new movie that's debuting, I believe, this week called Jojo Rabbit. Uh, which is, frankly, one of the greatest cinematic masterpieces I've watched in a very long time. It's about a, a young German boy whose imaginary friend is Hitler. It is way funnier and way more profound and way more touching than I had ever imagined it could be. And you should go see it.
0: If you like Moana, you have Taika to thank.
2: Half Maori, half Jewish, just like he should be.
1: From New Zealand to Kurdistan, my mazel tov is for the Kurds. For being friends of the United States, friends of democracy, friends of Israel, friends of the Jews, uh, friends of the Armenians, to whom some of their leaders have apologized for participation a century ago in the Armenian genocide. The Kurds are this terrific people whom we sell out time and again. They fight alongside us, and then we abandon them, as it seems our government once again uh, is doing, allowing Turkey to murder them. It's among the worst things that the current administration has done, but I'd like to focus just on the greatness of the Kurds. Mazel tov. Stephanie?
0: I have a shout-out to my mother-in-law, Wendy Cohen. She has been hosting breakfast every year since Ben and Sarah were kids. And I went there this year. And oh, I've it was, heard about those breakfasts. It was great. It was so fun. And those I are brought, famous. Yes, I brought all the leftovers in for our colleagues here at Tablet and the literary agency we share an office with.
2: Those could feed half of New Jersey. I
0: sent an email out to the office saying, Breakfast leftovers in the kitchen. I went to a meeting, came back, and they were all gone. (laughs) So thanks to Bagels for You in Livingston, New Jersey uh, for that great diet tuna. And thanks to Wendy.
1: Mazel tov, Wendy Cohen. Love you, Wendy. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call them in. That's even better. Try to keep your voicemails between 30 and 90 seconds. We're at 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Get swag. That is unorthodox branded gear, t-shirts, onesies, mugs, all that stuff at bit.ly slash unorthoshirts. We often come to you live, and we like to take your advertisements, so to book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross, cross with a K, jcross at tabletmang.com follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod could you rate us on iTunes that actually does a lot to drive people to our show the algorithm really listens to five star ratings join our Facebook group our show is produced by Josh Cross our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Hader our artwork is by Esther Werdiger our social media Meshkiach is Elazar Abrams and our theme music is by Golem. online at golembox.com. our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Shahar Colt of George Etzedeck in West Newton Massachusetts and by rabbinic student Josh I think it's Shalev, but this comes off a of voicemail and I couldn't really understand the last name. Anyway, future Rabbi Josh is at Hebrew College. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but this week we're recording at Crosstown Studios South. They really dig a shag rug there. Shalom, friends.
0: I cannot find the rendition of the Barosh Hashanah song that I grew up with anywhere on the internet. <laughs> you know, so the cantor that I grew up with is Cantor Frieder. And you he mean was,
2: the Van de No, no, no. no. I, I t- want Barosh
0: Hashanah. You know that one? No, I don't. And then they go, oh. And then people go really high up when they, like certain people in the congregation do it high and everyone else does it low. Can't find it. Who? Someone send this to me. Cantors
1: of America. Could somebody send it to Stephanie? Somebody's gonna call it in. Or this send is what us, I'm just uh... using this podcast for now. Just for <laughs> you know, send tips. <laughs>